yes, I feel anxious, and how can I still live my life in a meaningful way? How can I not let my anxiety stop me? Because that's something I'm so passionate about is that anxiety doesn't win in people's lives. You know, that the most important decisions in your life are not dictated by your anxiety. Hi guys, we're your hosts, Jillian and Kaylin, and this is Teach Me How to Adult, a podcast on all the things you never learned growing up, like how to buy a home, manage stress, crush your love life, land your dream job, and how to love yourself more, because we could all be a little kinder to ourselves. We're still figuring out how to get our shit together, so we're calling in the experts and the hustlers for some real talk and legit tips on how to live your best life. Adulting isn't easy, but we got you. Hi, friends. We are so excited about today's episode, and I know we say that every day, but like this one, <laughs> we are super stoked about because we are diving- Today, it's real. Today, it's real. <laughs> Today, we are diving into all things anxiety, which is a topic we haven't really gone into on its own. It comes up in almost every episode because you and I- Yeah. Hello. My name is Kaylin. I suffer from anxiety. <laughs> we have- We have some- Welcome to our club. Yeah. Welcome to the club. The price of admission is heart palpitations and nervous sweats. <laughs> We are just so excited that we finally got to dive into this with an expert. We had psychologist Dr. Lauren Cook on the podcast to talk about anxiety, what it feels like, how to identify it, because even if you're not clinically diagnosed, you might still have it. Like when it's time to ask for help and also all of the ways that it might be affecting you that you might not have realized it. Yes. Sometimes anxiety creeps up in ways we have no idea. We just look at the common symptoms and we don't realize all the ways that it's affecting our relationships and our bodies. And it's it's really, really fascinating. We dive into the gut-brain connection. It's one of our favorite episodes of all time. Also because Kaylin and I are definitely on an anxiety journey of officially moving past the point of just telling each other we're anxious girlies and fucking doing something about it, which yeah. is long overdue. I know for me, I have started therapy this year. I actually just started some anxiety medication in March. Actually, like the week you and I were in LA, I was like, by the way, I'm starting new meds. (laughs) You were one then motherfucker. It was awesome. (laughs) I highly recommend. No, but like talk to your doctor, see if it works for you. I just felt like I tried everything under the sun. And then I was just at a point where I was like, I need immediate relief and it's been working really well for me I'm really really proud of you man Um, I know we've been talking about this for a while and you really took action when you realized how much anxiety was taking over your life and I think we've both had those what the fuck moments in the past year where we've been like wait this isn't how people normally live like the things that we're we're assuming are just normal aren't actually normal and I hate to say the word normal and I don't really like subscribe to what's normal or not but I'm just talking like having a meeting shouldn't induce like panic sweats right like right. just everyday occurrences that kind of should be manageable were becoming unmanageable and I think that's when we realized okay something has got to something's got to give and you with the new responsibilities of being a mom and like so many other things on your plate you really took action I'm really really happy for you and I certainly have noticed a difference I know you've yeah. noticed a difference so thanks man yay I think the biggest relief for me is the the mental space that's freed up when you address your anxiety mm. like it was the ruminating yes. that was killing me yeah I would stress out over like the smallest thing thinking like maybe you were upset 
with me about something when you did absolutely nothing wrong and there was no way yeah. that anything was wrong yeah. or my parents or Gabe I was yeah. just always like they're mad at me I disappointed them something's wrong to your point like that's not normal in the sense that like you don't have to live that way yeah I was always very aware of how my anxiety would crop up in my relationships like with with family like romantic partners with yeah. friendships with co-workers I shouldn't be fearful every time someone has a meeting in my calendar that I'm getting fired and I shouldn't be worried every time yeah. a friend messages me and is like hey can I call that like something horrible has happened and like that's how I was operating for a long time and I was aware of that but I recently realized that it's also really affecting my career and like my dreams and keeping mm. me playing small and I'm I'm done with that I do not want to let anxiety win I don't want it to stop me from living and chasing and pursuing the things that I really want to do. If I did not have anxiety, I would be fucking shooting for the moon, doing big media appearances and doing big open mic nights and performing and doing all these things that I actually really love to do, but I am too anxious about my anxiety to even let myself do them. So this is the year we are taking control. I have been doing like a lot of kind of CBT based practices to like challenge my own thoughts and to have tactics in place we Yay. talk about them a lot in this episode and we just really can't wait to share them i'm really proud of you dude i think you're doing a lot of big things this year and you've taken a big bet on yourself i've seen a big change in you thanks man and i'm excited to get more traditional mental health support and get back into therapy but this year has been a very physical um healing year for me mm -hmm. and getting way back into working out like more than I ever have healing some some gut and hormone issues and just making a lot of physical changes I'm noticing a difference I'm feeling better it's impacting my mind and my body for the better and that's such a huge part of the anxiety equation and I didn't even realize I was helping my anxiety by taking these steps and I, and it's all connected so it's all connected but we are not the experts so we called in the incredible Dr. Lauren Cook Dr. Lauren is a clinical psychologist, speaker, consultant, and author. Specializing in anxiety, she helps individuals and couples work through generalized anxiety, phobias, social anxiety, OCD, and more. Integrating positive psychology, third-wave psychological tenets, and neuroscience to inform her evidence-based teachings, she truly is one of the most holistic practitioners I have ever encountered. I I have so much respect for what she does. She runs a private practice in California called Heartship Psychological Services and has her own podcast called The Boardroom Brain. She's the author of Name Your Story, How to Talk Openly About Mental Health, and The Sunny Side Up, Celebrating Happiness. And she is about to release her latest book this fall called Generation Anxiety, a millennial and Gen Z guide to staying afloat in an uncertain world. You also might have seen her on TikTok, where she spreads approachable mental health advice to her hundreds of thousands of followers or in her features on The New York Times, Forbes, NBC, and Psychology Today. And she recorded this episode after having a baby eight weeks ago. So props to you, Lauren. Teach us how to manage our anxiety, Lauren. Lauren, thank you so much for being here with us today. We are extremely excited to talk to you because we are two very anxious girlies and <laughs> we have been just kind of white knuckling it through our anxiety for a while. Um, I'm in the perfect mind state for this for this interview. So I had a very oh. anxiety inducing day. So we're just really thrilled to talk to you. This is something we've wanted to tackle for a while. And we wanted to start off by asking you why you think that millennials and Gen Z's are the most anxious generations in history, it seems. What's behind this shift in mental health? 
Yeah. And it's not just, it seems it, it really is like we are finding in the data that people are definitely experiencing more anxiety and intense levels of anxiety. You know, I think really it's what's happening collectively as a society. I mean, there's so many things right now that really feel out of our control. You know, here in the States, when we look at gun violence, that's a huge, you know, 75% of people in the U.S. alone say that they feel unsafe every single day. That's really concerning. And you also look at the fact, I mean, before we hit record, right, Jill was saying, like, I may lose the power because we're in, like, a crazy rainstorm. Climate change is a big thing that's really stressful for people. It's 100 degrees here in LA today. So there's just so many things that feel out of our control. And and that's just on a collective level, right? Like I think personally too, we're, we're struggling more financially than previous generations did. We feel lonelier than ever. Yeah. Um, there's just a lot of reasons to be anxious. So it's, it's understandable that people do. Yeah. And I do think it's magnified by social media as well and I know everyone like likes to blame social media for everything I love social media I think there's so many great things about it but I also feel like every every generation has had collective trauma and has had terrible things happen I mean no no generation has gotten through without suffering Mm -hmm. but I feel we're bombarded by that in a way that no other generation has been with the 24-7 news cycles with every time you go and like doom scroll on your phone so I think that these struggles are just really amplified and at our fingertips constantly. And that yeah. certainly causes a lot of my anxiety. So I'm sure a lot of people feel the same. Oh, yeah. It's a fire hose of information. Yeah. I totally agree, Jill. And I remember when COVID was like hot and heavy two years ago, I had to stop watching the news because it was giving me so much anxiety. And I still feel like I'm recovering from it. Like I think I, I have, we can get into it later on in the episode, but some form of social anxiety. And I used to be like the life of the party. Like yeah. I I was super outgoing. I had no problems talking with, with people and going to parties and meeting new people. And now I'm like really reserved and it's, I find it really draining to put myself in those situations. And yeah. I'm going to blame it on COVID and lockdown because we had it really bad in, in Toronto when I lived there at the time. But I just feel like, yeah, the news cycle really perpetuates this anxiety and it it has lasting impacts on you. The social anxiety is so real. Like I'd say that's probably one of the most prominent things I see millennials and Gen Z reporting on. And you're so right, Kaylin, like the pandemic made it so bad for us. It's like if we don't use these social muscles, we kind of have social atrophy, like we have muscle atrophy. And so now getting back into it, it's like when you go back to the gym and you feel out of shape, we're like out of social shape. You know, I was just at a mommy and me class yeah. yesterday and, and it was time to like introduce ourselves. And I'm like, I'm going to like straight up puke in this class because I'm so anxious to introduce myself, you know? So we're all feeling it. Yeah. Oh, I love that you compared it to a muscle that makes me feel a lot better because I was like, is this an age thing or or what is it? But I have felt the same. And I think a lot of it is is the pandemic and the shift in how our culture functions because I used to be in an office every day. I loved going into the office when I had my friends there. It was fun. I was constantly in meetings. And now I've been completely remote for three years, like fully. And when I have an in-person meeting, I get so fucking anxious before. Like I'm driving there and I am freaking out. I'm waking up in the morning anxious, being like, I have to make sure I'm on time. I have to, these are things I used to do every single day without thinking. And now when I have to go and do them, I find them really stressful. And I'm having these anxiety spikes by them. I'm like, what's wrong with me? But you're right. I think when we become out of practice with those things, 
we atrophy. And then when we try to do it again, it's it's scary. So that's mm-hmm. a helpful way to give ourselves a bit of, of grace and remind ourselves we can work that muscle. Totally. But what are some other ways that anxiety might be impacting like our day-to-day life, our relationships, our interactions in ways that we may not even realize? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's a reason that people are so fascinated by attachment theory right now, right? Anxious attachment, secure attachment, avoidant attachment. These are all buzzwords that we're seeing a lot online right now. And for good reason. I write about that a lot in Generation Anxiety because many of us have anxious attachment where we kind of cling in our relationships, likely because we are having a hard time meeting people, quite frankly. You know, a lot of people are having a hard time dating, meeting somebody that they really connect with. So sometimes we really just cling to that one relationship that we're getting in our lives. We can do the same thing in our friendships too, staying in toxic friendships. It's not just intimate relationships either. And so, you know, that's where we see a lot of anxiety come up for folks, how to navigate their relationships. Interestingly, the most common anxiety disorder of all of them is phobias, which people kind of laugh at a little bit, like, oh, you're afraid of spiders, haha, whatever. But for me, like, that's really why I went to therapy, because I have a metaphobia, which is a phobia of vomit, (laughs) really fun. And, you know, it was so debilitating for me that I wouldn't go to bars. I was scared to go to different social situations where somebody might be sick. I definitely didn't want to have a child, Mm -hmm. you know, so really big life decisions were being impacted by my anxiety. uh, And that was something, you know, we can talk more about. I'm really glad I was able to work through to a great extent. I literally have a baby in the other room. So clearly I got through to the other side. Um, But the last one I'll say too, and this one really surprises people I'm seeing a ton of separation anxiety in my practice where people are very afraid to lose their loved ones. They are afraid to say goodbye to people. It's hard to be away from the people that they care about. Um, A lot of death anxiety even kind of attaches to separation anxiety. So we think that that just affects like little preschoolers, right, who are like saying goodbye to their parents. But I'm seeing 20 and 30-year-olds, you know, very much struggling with the separation anxiety piece. That's so interesting because I was talking to Jill about this the other day that I think I think I have separation anxiety from my daughter. Like she definitely does because she's a year and a half, but I think I have it too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She kind of became like my safe space over the past year and a half of like, I, I know my role with her. I also had just moved across the country four months after I had her. So I was away from my like core support system. Bit of a rough first year of postpartum, but that's okay. We are here now. But yeah, I I realized the other day, like I feel the most calm when I'm with her. And Mm -hmm. sure, that's great and lovely, but that's not sustainable long term. And I need to make sure that she doesn't develop or that she does develop secure attachments with me and everybody else in her life and that I let other caregivers come into the picture and help her, which I haven't been good at doing. So very interesting that you've noticed that across the board in other ways that it's the separation anxiety that's creeping up. Oh, yeah. And I think part of that, too, is we have become way more nuclear. We have less people within our immediate world, which is weird, right? Because you go on social media and you have a ton of people that you see and that you're connected with, but it's it's not the same. And so, you know, when we look back, you know, the, even the cave person days, right? I mean, typically people had about 150 people in their community, most of us probably couldn't identify 150 people that we feel closely connected to that we could call on for help. And so 
you know, that makes sense that we really start to feel like we have to cling on to the few people that we do have in our actual lived world. What about routines? Can you have separation anxiety from your daily routines? Because I also find whenever I'm like traveling to see family or friends or I something like messes up my routine, I my anxiety is through the roof. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, anxiety at its core is all about control, right? We We want to have that peace of mind, if you will. The the funny thing is, is that the more we try and seek control, the more out of control we often feel. And that's something I write about in the yeah, book is yeah. that, you know, if we can let go of control, because control is really such an illusion. Honestly, there's very few things in life that we can like actually factually control. If we can actually surrender and let go of that, that's where like the peace is. But I think for many of us, I call it laying back mm. in the hammock. Many of us are afraid to do that trust fall of like, are you sure things aren't going to, shit's not going to hit the fan if I like really let go of the yeah. control I want in my life. So it, it's interesting, right? We also heard someone recently say that like anxiety is very much tied to avoidance. I thought that was interesting too. I'd never heard it put that way. And I was like, whoa. Oh, it's all about avoidance, right? Because when you feel anxious, you want to run away. I've really seen the avoidance piece with a lot of clarity since I heard that too, because I, a few weeks ago, I had to have like a few difficult conversations in a row with people and the amount of pre-anxiety I had leading up to it. Like I put myself through hell, just agonizing over what I was going to say and how are they going to react and what's going to happen and how am I going to do this? And like, I was so stressed. I was anxious to the point of like nauseous and I was avoiding it. I was drawing it out and every day I wouldn't deal with it. Every day I wouldn't send the message. Every day I wouldn't make the call. And I just put myself through way longer of a period of dwelling and avoidance and anxiety. And as soon as I did it, it was fine and everything was fine. And I felt so much better. And I'm like, avoiding this created so much tension and unnecessary just suffering in my life. Whereas if I had just like dealt with it as soon as I realized I needed to deal with it, I could have skipped most of that anxiety. Maybe had a bit of jitters before I make the call, but yeah, I, it was a lot of it was self-induced. So yeah, that anticipatory anxiety is... Like you were saying, Jill, I feel like nine times out of 10, it's so much worse than the actual thing. But that anticipatory anxiety is is really powerful. It's like all the worst thoughts that the brain tells us that it's going to be this epic disaster. Uh, and that's what's hard about our human brains, mm-hmm. right? They tend to skew negative and they tend to be ruminative. So it's like this you know, hamster wheel of mm-hmm. negativity in our brain not many of us are filled with those optimistic thoughts of this is going to go great. You know, it's usually the opposite. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And it's our brains like just trying to protect ourselves and be like, we're going to just like identify the worst case scenarios so that you're prepared and we can keep you safe. But then Mm -hmm. sometimes believing our anxious thoughts takes over and, and then here we are. Are there different like categories? I mean, you've mentioned phobias and attachment anxieties, but then you also just said like anticipatory which is a good good way to classify that. Like, are there different buckets of anxieties that that people should kind of know about to help figure out where their where their issues are? Yeah, I mean, if if we're going textbook here, like with a diagnostic statistical manual, you know, you do have your quote anxiety disorders, like generalized anxiety. That's when we tend to worry about anything, everything, and the worrying can really feel out of control. You've got your separation anxiety, for example, phobias. 
panic attacks. I'm no stranger to a not so fun panic attack. And and that can really be a diagnosis as well as agoraphobia, people who really can't leave their home because they're so afraid of having panic, things like that. Interestingly, because I think a lot of people think OCD and anxiety have a lot of overlap, which I personally think they do. That's in a separate category of the DSM entirely. So in OCD, in that category, you have things like body dysmorphia, tics, things like that, where you're seeing more of those ruminative Mm -hmm. behaviors where you're engaging in repetitive acts oftentimes. Hoarding, for example, is in that part of the DSM too. Uh, So it's interesting how they're Mm -hmm. separate categories, but I do think there's a lot of overlap there. I also wanted to talk about the gut-brain connection because this is really fascinating. People are starting to talk a lot more about it. I know you're shedding a lot of, of light on that in the work that you do. Can you tell us about why we should be doing blood work and how nutritional deficiencies can impact our anxiety? It was so important to me in writing Generation Anxiety to not just talk about the neck up approach, but to really talk about the whole body healing anxiety because anxiety is such a physical experience a lot of times. It's not just in your head, right? You get the nausea, headaches, body aches. It's it's a physical experience. So for us to neglect the whole body, we're missing a big piece of the conversation. You know, it's interesting when we look at this gut-brain axis connection, like 95% of the serotonin in our body is housed in our gut. And actually, we see a 60% overlap between anxiety disorders and IBS. So oftentimes, people who have IBS and any kind of stomach troubles, they very likely will have an anxiety disorder diagnosis as well. And the brain is literally getting messages my gut isn't well, that sends more cortisol from the brain, which then aggravates the stomach. So it's like this vicious cycle. You know, for me, I credit my naturopath so much to healing my anxiety because I was having constant panic attacks. I couldn't go out to restaurants. I would have panic attacks on planes. I mean, if you have panic attacks, you know that they can just intensify and amplify. And so I started going to this naturopath. She had me do my blood work. We saw I was deficient in vitamin D. My magnesium levels were kind of off, B12. I started taking a tonic that she had me go on and some supplements. I haven't had a panic attack in like three years. I feel like a different person. Wow. I recommend people to her all the time because I'm such a believer in how if you can heal your gut, you will be amazed at how your brain will start to to shift too. And the the place wow. to start out is with the blood work piece, right? Because a lot of us, we're just missing that piece of data and it tells you so much about what's going on. So those deficiencies that you might have if you're you know deficient and, and need to take supplements or something like that, those are causing a chemical reaction that's triggering like stress hormones essentially that might be causing anxiety. Exactly. It releases that cortisol. And what's really interesting, because I have a lot of clients where they wake up in the morning and they throw up, for example. They feel super nauseous in the morning. Well, interestingly, it's called the cortisol awakening response. Cortisol is highest in the morning. And it's so inflammatory for our gut. And what's fascinating is somebody can start taking something like an antidepressant, a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, for example, I almost always see it, the nausea goes away for people because it's really recalibrating that serotonin in the body. So they're less likely to feel nauseous. 
it blows my mind, you know? So yeah, we really do see that when people get their gut health in check, whether it's cutting out alcohol or cutting down on alcohol, since that can be so inflammatory. Um, and I talk about all this mm. in the book, the vitamins to look into and the foods to eat. And I don't want to say avoid or cut out because I, I like to be very food positive, but you know, to really start to make shifts in yeah. what we're putting in the body because food you know, can be medicine for our bodies and sometimes it can be at worst poison for our bodies too. And, and we have to be mindful about that. Yeah. Alcohol especially is something that both Jill and I have been trying to be a little bit, no, very mindful of this yeah. year because we've both noticed that after we drink, the we anxiety. can feel pretty down. Like it, de- it depletes the anxiety spirals. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, it has a ripple effect. And I think that's one thing that I've noticed. I haven't been able to do a deep dive on food yet, but I'm sure the late night ice cream isn't helping any of my problems. Since I was a child, I wake up nauseous every single morning, truly, to the point like this is a TMI moment, but like when I brush my teeth, I gag, like no matter what, because I'm so nauseous in the mornings. And so I don't eat until noon because I can't stomach food in the morning. It's the worst. Um, And probably creates a vicious cycle of being stressed about mornings, which then creates more cortisol, which then, you know, I'm sure there's, there's a lot there. And I know so much of your hormonal responses come from what's going on with your gut. So this is just really, really interesting. I can't wait to dive deep into this. Oh, yeah. We could have, we could go on a whole conversation down this, but, but yeah, no, I'm sorry to hear that. And you are not alone in that. I have so many people that I see who vomit, feel ill in the morning, especially. And so, you know, one thing getting that high protein in the morning, like my naturopath was like, if you can shoot for 20 grams of protein for breakfast, that really helps with blood sugar. It's hard though, right? If you're so nauseous, you can't get anything down. So yeah, it creates that vicious cycle. If someone hasn't been to a therapist yet or, and is having anxious thoughts and feelings, like how can they pinpoint the root of what's triggering it? Mm. Mm. Well, you know, that's what I'd say therapy is really good for is figuring out like, why am I feeling anxious? Because that can really be a, a deeper dive. I mean, I didn't really figure out for myself, right, that my emetophobia came from my mom having breast cancer when I was two years old. You know, that's like, so therapy can wow. be a good place to figure out like why wow. the anxiety is there. But I think a, another follow-up question to that that's helpful is, do I need to get therapy or help for this? Because a lot of people wonder like, well, like I'm worried, I'm stressed, but like, is that actually like a disorder? Is that a diagnosis? Do I need help? I think we can all benefit from therapy and help. I don't think you need to meet criteria necessarily, but I do like to tell people what we call the four Ds of distress, just to kind of benchmark for yourself, like where things are at. One is, is there a deviation from your norm? Like, do things feel out of the norm for you? And like, is there a deviation when you look around at your peers, your friends, where you're like, oh, I feel like I'm really having a harder time than I feel like maybe some of the other people that I know are? Um, Is there any kind of dysfunction? Like, are you not able to go to work? Are you not dating? You know, are you like really kind of closing in? Any kind of dysfunction that could be happening? If, let's say, for example, you did want to date and you couldn't, are you distressed? That's the third D. Like, are you like worried about what you're worrying about? We call it meta worrying. Like, I'm worried that I'm so worried, you know? And lastly, this this is important. You know, is there any kind of danger? Do you feel unsafe? 
are you worried you're going to harm someone else? Are you having thoughts like, oh, it would be nice just to not wake up tomorrow? You know, if you're having thoughts like that, any of those four Ds, I'd say, get yourself some help. You know, this is so common. Like one in three people like really struggles with some kind of mental health experience. So if any of those head home, talk to someone about it. If, if you're acting uncharacteristically, I think that's also a really great point that you brought up because I've even noticed amongst my friends, that's how I pinpoint when someone's not doing well. And I'm like, okay, this isn't generally how you are. Like something's up. And so if we can yeah. apply that to ourselves. But even if I've been telling myself recently, just because things have always been this way doesn't mean they have to be this way. And so I really didn't until probably, probably till we started this podcast and I started really like doing the work on myself and talking mm-hmm. about mental health so much through the podcast. That's the first time I ever was saying out loud to people, I have anxiety because I'd never like gotten a diagnosis. I'd never taken it seriously. I've just been like, no, this is just how life is. And when you realize like just because you have felt like this your whole life doesn't mean it's how you need to continue to feel. And it may be like your norm at that point, but that doesn't mean you have to just blindly accept that this is the way you are. Like maybe you can feel better. <laughs> like mm-hmm. just yeah. because it's the only thing you know doesn't mean it needs to be the way you move forward. So that's been, yeah, just a shift for me in in rather than accepting this is just the way I am. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, no, how can I make this better? Mm-hmm. How can I be more comfortable in my life and not just have constant heart palpitations anytime something remotely stressful happens like Mm -hmm. preach you're speaking to my soul (laughs) so how do you recommend people can best communicate what's going on with them or what their triggers are to their loved ones their partner their coworkers, if they need to when they creep up Mm -hmm. I think this is one of the hardest parts for people because you don't necessarily know how people will respond right and that talk Mm -hmm. about anticipatory anxiety. I think a lot of us get very scared that our family, our friends won't be supportive. And quite frankly, sometimes people aren't. You have to find who your people are that will support you when you come to them, you know, but if someone does come to you and share, you know, the best thing you can just say is like, thank you so much for sharing this with me. Like, what can I do to help you in this? I think where people get into sticky waters is or rough waters, I suppose, is that, Many of us are many therapists to our friends at 3 a.m. every night, you know, and on the flip Mm -hmm. side of it, you have folks who are really feeling like they're overburdened or they're getting really taxed with that emotional labor of trying to take care of a friend all the time. So these can be some tough conversations, right? And, And one of the favorite phrases that I have for folks, if you are a friend or a family member who's struggling with a loved one going through this, is to say, I care about you so much. I love you so much. I would not be doing my job as your friend, your parent, your coworker, if I didn't say that I think it would be helpful for you to get some help with this. And that is a very loving, kind way to tell that Mm -hmm. person, I I am doing you a disservice by trying to fill this hole for you. You know, let me help you get to the Mm -hmm. the another person who can help you. So I think that's something that that we all need some practice with because I think sometimes we can get into that people-pleasing with each other and then, you know, that person actually doesn't necessarily get the help that they need. In fact, they can really be enabled. And we see that all the time with OCD, for example. People will say, let's say, for example, somebody with relationship OCD. Do you love me? Are you going to leave me? All these kind Mm -hmm. of questions Well, the person typically will say, of course I love you. I'm never going to leave you. 
that actually is enabling the OCD because we're falsely reassuring to people sometimes things that we can't necessarily promise, right? There may come a day when the relationship may end or not giving those false reassurances. That is actually better for helping the person live with the uncertainty that is life with OCD. But many of us don't know that, you know, when we have somebody coming to us with anxiety. And in terms of like specific triggers, I guess it to me, they kind of feel like boundaries. And so it's, I think, important to communicate what might bring up a lot of anxiety and stress to, to the people around you so that they can be like, oh, I understand what's happening. Yeah. But then it gets sticky, I think, when we think that everyone has to like completely adjust around those triggers at all times. Mm-hmm. What do we do? Is it the same with boundaries where you're just communicating how you're going to react to something so everyone's aware? Or is it fair to be like, hey, this is going to cause me a lot of panic. Like, can we not? Or how do we balance this? Like sharing your triggers without trying to control people or expect them to dance around you all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that is the, the perfect question because it is so nuanced. It is helpful to communicate, hey, these are things that I do struggle with. And at the same time, still kind of challenge ourselves a little bit, right? Because we don't want to get into that avoidance cycle where, you know, now we'll never get on a plane, for example. So a lot of times we talk about what's called the anxiety hierarchy of what are your units of distress? For We call them SUDs, subjective units of distress. A zero is like, I'm chilling. A 10 is like, I need to go to the hospital. I'm panicking so bad. The sweet spot for challenging anxiety is like a four to six. So if we're like at a four to six range and it's a little uncomfy or it's uncomfy for me, but I can get through it and maybe you as my friend or my family member can support me with it, great. If we're getting in seven, eight, nine, that's okay. Let's take a step back and that's where we got to protect ourselves. So I find that kind of putting a number on it can be a nice way to check in with ourselves of like healthy challenge or is this too much and honoring that too. Oh, that's so helpful. Okay, so that's called the anxiety hierarchy, and it really would just involve people sitting down, identifying what causes them the most anxiety and distress, numbering it, and then like working through your fears based on where they fall on that. Exactly, and I include that in the book that people can write in their own anxiety hierarchy. It's great to work with a provider. You know, you could do this on your own. It's hard work, right, to face these fears. It's uncomfy. But yeah, that four to six is kind of that sweet spot. And what we see is we call it habituation. The more you face these fears, the easier it gets over time, you know. But many of us problematically, we avoid, we don't give ourselves a chance to see what happens when I ride out the wave and actually do see that I got through that scary thing I was afraid of. That's so helpful because literally yesterday... I think I treated something that was probably a four, like a 10. And it was me avoiding what I get super anxious about conflict. And my husband and I have to address this issue with a neighbor and he wanted to talk about it. And I was just like, I can't, I need to go for a walk. And like, to me, I was like, look at me, I'm setting a boundary. But on that walk, I was like, man, I probably could have just had the conversation and dealt with it. Like, this isn't really a big deal. I'm I'm making it a bigger deal by avoiding Mm. it. So now I know it was it was probably a four. So thank you. I'm going to use that in the future before I go for a long walk by myself. <laughs> yeah. 
It's okay. <laughs> Sometimes we need the walk. It's all good. But yeah. So when that anxiety spiral does strike, what are some key ways that we can self-soothe and just really try to use all of the tools that we have to calm ourselves down? Mm -hmm. So I find that when it comes to working through anxiety, it kind of tends to go one of two ways. And it's good to know about yourself what you kind of need. I often find there are folks who need their people, whether it's a phone call to a loved one, um, taking a drive with someone, that really feels grounding for them. They don't want to be alone, and that's fine. You have other folks, and this is how mm -hmm. I am when you feel anxious, you want to kind of be by yourself. Let me put my headphones in, listen to my music. Yeah. Uh, I actually want to kind of get away from people. <laughs> and so know yourself and what you need in those moments. And if you're that person who needs community, have your people that you call, you know, and get into it with them to talk it through. Have a few people so mm -hmm. that you are not, you know, really turning to that one key person all the time, right? If you're more like I am, and it sounds like maybe you two are as well, where you kind of need that alone time, have your playlist that you love. We, we also call it a self-care kit. Engage the senses. What's something soft you can touch, something you can smell, maybe something you can taste. Mm -hmm. Bringing ourselves back to the body so that we get out of that spiral of the mind, that can all be really helpful. Mm, yeah, the coming back to the body is is really important. I was listening to a podcast on anxiety recently as well. And, and a, a doctor was talking about how we're so in our heads about how to deal with anxiety, but so much of it is actually dealing with your body and getting into your body. And I found that so helpful. Mm -hmm. And that made so much sense in terms of like how exercise helps me with anxiety. And we're told our, basically our whole lives, exercise is good for your mental health, but you're like, ugh, fuck off. Like, I don't want to, but really it does. Like it fully does. And I think all of these physical things are really helpful, like the box breathing, if, you know, if breathing helps you and, and then it's not even like, oh, go meditate. It's like, no, just literally focus on numbers and breaths. Mm -hmm. And it's like very logical and something you can easily do. And I know um, a number of my friends with anxiety also will change their state in terms of like holding ice or taking yeah. an extremely cold shower or doing something just weirdly physical that like helps bring them into their body mm -hmm. and I think that's a really accessible tool for people who just need an instant you know kind of snap out of of whatever they're spiraling about mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah I write about this that there's been a lot of research about how even shaking in the body is so restorative like if you go on YouTube and you watch a polar bear for example who's been stunned their whole body will shake as they come out of that state, even women right after they give birth, there's often shaking because the body is equilibrating. Oh, wow. Interestingly, we as a society are so like, don't shake, don't cry, control your body at all costs, be stiff. And the body is like, no, I need yes. to move. So that's why we like to dance. Like you said, exercise, shake it off, right? Even like that, um, if you do like a ballet bar class, right? And your muscles shake, that is so, so good for anxiety. Yeah. So embrace the shakes. It's mm. actually really, really good when we're feeling anxious. Oh my God. I wish I had spoken to you earlier because I was just emceeing a wedding and I, despite public speaking my whole life, have developed a huge fear of it. And I was super anxious, but I also have realized that my anxieties aren't about the speaking. They're about shaking. 
And so like my anxiety has become the anxiety. Oh, like yes. I just, my, my only concern and focus is I don't want people to see how scared I am. And then I get more scared. And it's like, it's not even about the delivery, the content, the getting up there. It's purely become this terrible anxiety I have of people seeing my body shake and I fucking shake like a leaf like it is quivering in the wind and so I was like I, I need to make sure there's a podium I need to make sure I'm not holding anything I need to make sure that nobody sees and I was so fixated on the shaking mm -hmm. and that has become I think what holds me back a lot because even when I think of like what we want to do with this podcast like we want to do live events we want to do all of these things and I'm like what am I going to do if my nerves start to show and I'm like freaking out about it. So it's just really nice to hear you say that, that like this is a societal thing that we've put on shaking when really it's probably a normal reaction to the body just being in like, I don't know, fight or flight or just having a lot of attention on it or being worried. Mm -hmm. um, and that I probably need to just remove this villainization of shaking so that I can relax, let it pass and like move on. Maybe, I don't know if this will help. This is something that has helped me. It sounds like it might be helpful to get a case of the fuck it's. Like, that's what I call it. When I get shaky or panicky, I'm like, fuck it. Like, so what? I'm panicky. Like, here we go. See me in all my glory. You yeah. know what I mean? And that's something yeah. that... Um, yeah. Sorry that, for caring. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, that's something I share is that, like, sometimes your anxiety is going to be there. And often people, like you're saying get anxious about having anxiety. But if you can say, you know what? I may be anxious at this. I may have a panic attack. I may be shaking. Screw it. Like, oh, well, I'm not going to let it stop me. Uh, yeah. That is often actually counterintuitively what reduces the distress. There's something endearing too about having, like for bridesmaid speeches or MC speeches, having the person's like admit like I'm super nervous now I was in a wedding a few weeks ago and the maid of honor was like I hate public speaking if I cry if I sweat if I shake just cheer me on and it was really sweet and she ended up crushing it labeling it removed the fear that people might know because you're already calling it out in advance so I didn't do it at yeah. the wedding but the last public speaking environment I was in I was at a poetry event and I was about to share a piece of writing that I had on fear and I was I was quivering. I was so fucking nervous, but I was like, this is kind of perfect. Like it's a poem all about fear. I'm clearly so fearful of doing this and I'm holding the, you know, the sheet and I'm standing there shaking. And so I just called it out and I was like, guys, this is, this is really perfect. My body's doing me a solid right now. I am clearly riddled with fear, shaking my ass off. And this is going to be a, a really honest performance. And I, everyone was like, it added to it. And then I wasn't embarrassed by it. So I think there's something to owning it, labeling it, and not being so focused on if people will notice because you've already just been like, fuck it. Yep. Love that. Yes. You have identified different types of sharks that can kind of creep up and infest our waters from like everything to our minds, to certain people, to just society. Can you tell us more about these sharks? Yeah. It's, it's funny when I speak with companies, sometimes I literally put on my like little shark hat. I do talk about the three different sharks and I'm curious to hear you say which one you feel like is the most prominent maybe for each of you. So there's a shark of our mm -hmm. minds, right? Okay. Like we're so cruel mentally to ourselves. I'm stupid. No one likes me. I'm not attractive enough. Blah, blah, blah. There's also sharks who are other people, honestly. Like sometimes it's a family member, a, a friend. Sometimes it's a person in your life who like seems like a dolphin, but then like turns around and is a, a shark in fact and gives you a bite. 
Mm. And then like societally too, whether it's microaggressions, racism, sexism, all the isms, you know, these are toxic sharks in our waters too. So I always like to ask people when I'm sharing on these, like which shark they feel like is the worst for them. Curious which one feels Mm. like the hardest for both of you. I feel like I can answer on behalf of both of us and gonna, say the mind. The mind. <laughs> yeah. That's what most people say. A hundred percent. Because even yeah. when I think it's other people, no, it's me convincing myself that everybody hates me. And yeah. none of the people that I think hate me usually do. Like it's just purely in my <laughs> mind and it's very self-induced. Yeah. 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 Same here. And, and that's what most people will say, that the shark is – in their own head, the hammerhead, if you will, um, not to get too deep <laughs> into the shark puns, but, um, but yeah, I'm obsessed. <laughs> it's got some real teeth. <laughs> Did a bunch of dads just enter the chat? Because we got some dad jokes going on. <laughs> okay, sorry, we we totally uh, swam off on that one. But so. <laughs> done I'm done I'm sorry so what do we do with these sharks well so a lot of us we are people pleasers with the other people in our lives who are sharks uh I I often will say it's like we put on a seal costume and chum up the waters for ourselves you know so many of us we have a really hard time saying no to people you know we I know I struggle with this I don't want people to think I'm mean or they don't like me right or or God yeah. forbid, I burn a bridge and then, you know, some, ends a career opportunity or something like that, you know? Uh, you are literally us. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel, yeah, we're yeah. vibing. We are yeah. triplets. <laughs> because, ooh, man, I, the people pleasing can be so real. So that's, that's a really tough piece. I mean, the, the shark of the mind, I really think we need that self-compassion piece to just be kinder to ourselves. We're nice to everybody else a lot of times, but we are brutal to ourselves. And for people watching the video, I always mm-hmm. love giving people book recs. This one is one of my favorites, self-compassion, very complex title. But but no, Dr. Kristen Neff, <laughs> she is like a game changer in the field of psychology and she talks all about like just how to be kinder to our mind, which sounds a very basic concept, but most people have a really hard time practicing self-compassion. And I always will say to clients, just try for a day. See what happens if you're kind to yourself because yeah. people are convinced if I'm kind to myself, wheels are going to fall off the cart. I'm going to be lazy. I'm going to be apathetic. But we really do see that when we are kind to ourselves, we actually perform our best rather than when we should on ourselves, you know? Yeah, 100%. So outside of therapy, because you can talk a lot about inner child in therapy and deal with a lot of that. But for those who either aren't doing therapy for whatever reason or need something in addition, what are some ways to work on your anxiety yourself? Mm. Well, I come back to it again. Get the blood work done. That's very important. But in the book, I list over a 100 different ways that people can do their own self-healing work that doesn't just include therapy. And I was just posting about this on Instagram because, yeah, I'm a therapist. Obviously, I love therapy. But it's not the only thing that we can and should do. Like, And we have to move past this westernized lens yeah. that therapy and psychiatry are the way to go, right? Like even naturopathy, yeah. mm-hmm. I never heard in grad school one mention of 
you know, nutrition, supplements, how that impacts. There was no conversation around that. And it's great that our field is very focused on evidence-based treatments, but I think that neglects a lot of cultural experiences for people where, let's say, acupuncture is hugely healing for you. I did acupuncture for the first time during my pregnancy. Holy cow. I've like never been more peaceful. It did not turn my breech baby, but that is okay. And I said to my acupuncturist, I'm like, is it normal to like feel high after getting acupuncture? Like I was like blissed out. And she's like, yeah, we call it getting acu-stoned, you know, (laughs) because it just. (laughs) I I want that. Go for it. It was, I was shocked like how at peace I felt after (laughs) Yeah. And it's, I I love, I mean, I come from like a a journalism background, so I love an evidence-backed strategy, but I also think like sometimes science is still catching up. Like sometimes a strategy could work and they just haven't done conclusive studies on it yet. So I think we can't, or they haven't prioritized it because it's not profitable and they don't have the funding. So I'm starting to now see that maybe I was too married to the idea that everything has to be like academically researched for me to like care enough to try it. And now I'm like, no, there's a lot behind the scenes that goes on to even allow a lot of that research to happen. I do know that when I've done intense breath work, I've had insane releases. Like I was totally fine. And next thing you know, I'm bawling on the floor, like things coming out that I didn't even know needed to come out. And I felt so light after. I really like what you're saying about kind of marrying, you know, Western and Eastern practices and reaching for like different cultural practices, not just what the doctor might say, because a lot of doctors aren't properly trained in nutrition even. So there's a lot of missing links. Well, and things are really coming full circle. I mean, this isn't in the book because we couldn't get through legal, but, you know, even look at MDMA and psilocybin, you know, mushrooms. Like for so long, that was like, oh, no, no, no. They're doing studies with the Veterans Administration, you know, testing this. So it's, it's fascinating to see how things shift. And that's why I really think Take a client-centered approach for yourself. What works for you? And if that provides you healing, that's the ticket right there. You talk in your book about empowered acceptance. How can we use that principle in our everyday lives to soothe our anxiety? Yeah. So that kind of ties back to that piece we were talking about, accepting the anxiety, a little bit of the fuckets, if you will, of like, I feel anxious. Mm -hmm. That is okay. Don't run away from it. Don't put your head in the sand and say, la, 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 I don't want to face my life. Acceptance is not apathy, though. It's Acceptance is not giving up. And that's that empowered piece that kind of supercharges the acceptance, if you will, that says, yes, I feel anxious. Mm. And how can I still live my life in a meaningful way? How can I not let my anxiety stop me? Mm. Because that's something I'm so passionate about is that anxiety doesn't win in people's lives. You know, that the most important decisions in your life are not dictated by your anxiety. Maybe you say no to something for other reasons, but not because you're anxious. So that's that empowered piece. And and talking about that collectively too, how we can all come together to make these changes we want to see in the world. You know, as we hear these terrible things in the news to not just say, well, that sucks okay, what can each of us do about it a little bit, you know, so that we don't feel like this is all just happening to us? Oh, that's so powerful. Shifting out of a bit of a like victim mindset and into like, it's not just happening to me. I have a role to play in this. This is happening, but I can also forge ahead with it. I really love that. And you obviously did that because now you have a beautiful baby boy that's sleeping in the room next to you and you got through your fears. So that's very 
very exciting. Facing all of these fears has been so transformative. Like it's, I'm only eight weeks in and it's like the best thing that's ever happened in my life. And it's like, thank God I did not let the anxiety decide, you know, that I couldn't be a parent. Wow. Yay. Oh, that's, I'm so happy for you. Thank you for sharing that. So one question we always like to ask our, our guests is what's one thing you wish you had been taught in school? I wish somebody taught me more about financial literacy, taught me about money, because I feel mm-hmm. like growing up, no one taught me, sorry parents, but I feel like I never learned in school about investing, saving money. And I, I just feel like as a woman, especially yep. women, we need to be talking yeah. about this more. Um, because that's a part of anxiety too. If you don't feel like you're financially stable or feel like you can financially thrive, that's going to be very stressful day to day. And so that's something I'm passionate about too, is talking more openly about money with women, because I really think it's something missing from the conversation. Well, thank you so much, Lauren, for all of the amazing advice, inspiration, support, and validation that you have just given us This has been such a good chat. I honestly feel better and lighter for it. So thank you. And please share with everyone where they can follow you and find you and everything about your new book. Congratulations, by the way. Mm. Um, Yeah, let everybody know. Awesome. Thank you so much. I feel lighter too. So such a joy to get to be the the triplet in our conversation today. Uh, So (laughs) yeah, so (laughs) folks can find me. I'm on TikTok and Instagram a lot at Dr. Lauren Cook. Generation Anxiety is coming out September 19th, uh, and that's available wherever you like to buy books. If you love books, join us for the Brain Health Book Club. I pick a book every month related to psychology and personal development. We almost always have the authors join us, which always blows my mind that they're willing to jump in, but it's really fun. Uh, And I have my own podcast too, The Boardroom Brain, where we talk about the psychology behind career success. Uh, So yeah, I'm excited to connect Mm. with folks. You can go to drlaurencook.com to find everything else you might need. We really hope this episode helps you manage your anxiety and work with your body and your mind to help you feel your best. We'll leave you with a quote from renowned writer Khalil Gibran. Our anxiety does not come from thinking about the future, but from wanting to control it. So wise. That's what he said. So there you have it, guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard today, it would mean the world to us if you would subscribe and leave a comment or a rating. And we'd love it if you would share this with your friends by screenshotting the episode and sharing it on social by tagging at Teach Me How to Adult Podcast and DM us with any topics or guests you'd like to hear on the show. See you next time. Bye. Bye.